What's going on, everybody? Welcome to Wise Guys Hideaway with your boy here, Ian Barr. You know, holding it down through this uh, crazy quarantine that the whole country's in, the whole world, and actually not even just the country. So, just out here trying to keep y'all entertained, man. Today, I'm talking about sort of a kind of a mystery mobster to me, that is anyway, and uh, that's uh, Joe Profacci, Giuseppe Profacci, but everybody just called him Joe, or as he was better known as uh, Don Pepino, or uh, the Olive Oil King, depending on who you talk to. So we're going to dive into him in a second, but before we do, I'm going to give my shout outs as, as per usual, you know, to our thing clothes and apparel that, uh, you know, my boy Gunnar Lindblom and myself and many others are partners in. Uh, it's uh it's just some of the best gear on the market right now, you guys. I mean, from fall gear to summer gear, you know, all the way to winter coats and track suits. I mean, you can get it all from our thing. And uh, there you can find them on Twitter. You can find them on Facebook. Just, I mean, Google them, and I'm, I'm sure I'm sure you can find your way. You're adults. You'll, you'll figure it out. <laughs> I also got to give a big shout-out to Gunner himself. Uh, he's doing his own little series called My Thing that's on YouTube, which is uh, just talking about, like, his firsthand experiences and, you know, the things he went through coming up as a, as a grandson and a nephew to many well-known Detroit uh, mobsters, uh, and, you know, even, in fact, some very high-ranking ones, and how he became an associate, you know, and all the things he did for them before landing himself in, in the big house for uh, 13-plus for a uh, bank robbery, and then writing his book, you know, To Be a King's Volume 1 and 2, and starting the clothing apparel brand, our thing, you know, the the whole nine yards. So if you ain't listening to me, pop over to YouTube and give my boy a watch, because I know you ain't doing shit anyway. You're quarantined. Another shout-out goes to Scott M. Bernstein, the author of Motor City Mafia and the proprietor of the original Gangster Podcast, which I'm a very big, very big fan of. He's got a great guest. He's got great content. He's a... Definitely always been sort of a inspiration to me, and now at this point in my life, uh, sort of a mentor, being the fact that, I mean, we're in contact, so big shout out to Scott. My boy Ronnie the Cockroach, you know, David Randazzo, my boy David Brexbier over in London holding it down, Boston Rob, you know, Paulie G from New York, who I have to get back on here because we recorded an episode together and it, and it didn't record for some reason, and ah, uh, man, disappointed you guys didn't get to hear that one, but just all the guys on Facebook and all the people on Twitter helping support me and, you know, just all my friends and family, I love you guys, you know who you are, uh, big shout out to my Soundtech M for, you know, forever setting up, you know, all my gear and just making sure that... I'm all set in my little studio I got here, so I like I, I mean I owe all you guys a, a very big thank you, so so thank you. We're gonna get into it now though. Good old Joe Profacci. Now he was born on October second in uh, 1897 in Villa Sicily, and uh, he was born Giuseppe Profacci. He would uh, would he, he would eventually go by Joe, but his real name you know is Giuseppe. Uh, I mean, and he would pass on June sixth, 1962. Uh, he would be 64 years old. And he would pass like many of his era did from cancer. Now he's he's buried currently. I mean, I guess forever for eternity. Currently, <laughs> he's buried in St. John's Cemetery in Queens, and he definitely goes down as one of the original figures in the modern day American mafia. Now his spouse was Nifa uh, Macliaco, who he married in 1928. They would have six children together, and his brother-in-law Joseph uh, Macliaco would eventually take over the family after his passing. Now, one of his daughters would end up marrying into the Bonanno family as well. Uh, so Bill Bonanno would end up being his uh, his nephew-in-law, kind of. Um, I'm sorry, it wouldn't be one of his daughters, it'd be one of his nieces, excuse me. But nonetheless, so he, he I mean, we're talking about a pretty mobbed up family here, but the, the weird thing about Profacci is he never, he kind of just 
happened. I mean, you'll, I mean, you'll understand as we go, but he's not one of these guys where you hear about like the grit and the grime and the, you know, the, the, the violence they had to commit and how, you know, that how they strive to become bosses of families or, you know, it, it wasn't really like that for Joe. I mean, he started his early life as a criminal in the, on the streets of Sicily. And, you know, he was just kind of a, a run-of-the-mill criminal, you know, you're stealing from cart vendors, you know, you're shaking down, you know, local businessmen who got nobody to run to, nobody to turn to, you know, you're probably, probably running a little bit of numbers and, you know, maybe slanging a little bit of, you know, narcotics, but nothing, you know, nothing too extreme. Uh, that is until in 1920 uh, in Palermo when he's caught up for theft and has ended up being sentenced to, you know, a year in prison. Now... That year in prison, I don't, I don't know if it sort of like shifted his mindset of, you know, the whole lifestyle he was living, because when he gets out, he, he, it almost seems like he tries to go legitimate. Like, you know, he, he was released from prison in 1921 and then he pretty much heads right to the U S and he eventually lands in New York city on September 4th in 1921 and he, he bums around New York City for a little bit, sees what's happening, and then he, he tries to move out to Chicago, and he opens up a grocery store and a bakery, but they sort of end up, you know, going bankrupt. It is just not a good time for things like that, and uh, then so eventually on September 27, 1927, uh, he becomes a citizen, and sometime during this time period, he moves back to Brooklyn, and that's when he begins getting involved with the gangs. Now... Along with being involved with, you know, the Bananos and, like, how uh, Macliaco will end up taking over for him, Profaci also had two daughters who married into the, into the Detroit mob, and they and they married very, very high-ranking members. His one daughter would marry uh, William Tuco, Black Bill Tuco, and then his other daughter would marry, marry Joseph Sorelli, now both of whom were bosses of the Detroit combination, they call it, or the Detroit mob for just, you know, in layman's terms. Um, at different, you know, at separate times, you know, so, I mean, his, his daughters definitely had a good taste in, a a good taste in mobster men, if you're going to marry, I mean, marry high-ranking ones, right? <laughs> um, another relative of his, I do believe it was a niece, uh, it could, it could potentially be a daughter, uh, Rosalia Profaci, was once quoted as saying he was a flamboyant man who smoked big cigars, drove big Cadillacs, and did things like buy Broadway tickets for us. And he didn't just buy two, three, or even four seats. He bought the whole row. So, I mean, oh, and it's his, it's his cousin, actually. It's his cousin, now that I'm seeing. I have it down in my notes, but my fucking handwriting so uh, sloppy that sometimes I don't even know why I bother. I should just be winging it. But nonetheless, you know, I try. <clears throat> so, yeah, so, I mean, the Profaci family just always kind of kept, like, their mob roots intact, you know? So, after he joins up with the local gangs, um, he you know, gets familiar with guys like Lucky Luciano and, you know, uh, Joseph Bonanno, Vito Genovese, you know, uh, uh, Frank Costello, all those guys, you know, all, all the, all the old times, all the epitomes of the modern American mafia, all like all the key characters who started it up. Profaci was very close with. Now on December 5th, 1928, Profaci attends a meeting in Cleveland, Ohio, and he's just sort of given the rein to running uh, you know, a Borgata in Brooklyn, you know, and it's, it's very unclear why that, and nobody really even knows why a lot of people think it, it might've been because of how involved, because as soon as he moved back to New York city, after he was done with Chicago, he became very heavily involved in the olive oil business. Now the olive oil business as 
uncriminalistic as it sounds, to this day is still the mob's biggest moneymaker. It wasn't always their biggest moneymaker. Uh, you know, back then, obviously, Prohibition, and then, you know, for a while, the labor unions, narcotics, yada, yada, yada. You know, things have come and gone for the mob, but in today's day and age, olive oil is still the number one way the mob, you know, generates revenue. You know, it's, I don't, I don't understand. I mean, I guess, you know, olive oil, Italian food, you know, olive oil in general, you know, I I think Italian, I mean, you shouldn't, that's kind of stereotyping, but hey, fuck them. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, so I'm, I mean, I, I, I'm not quite sure how that whole racket works for them. Like I know, I know how the numbers was done. I know how truck hijacking was done. I know, I don't really know how they just, I don't know. I don't, I, I really don't know how they make such giant, you know, proportions of money from olive oil, unless olive oil just generates that many sales and they literally control all of it. I don't know. All I know is that that is a fact that the number one moneymaker for the mob in this day and age is olive oil. I mean, followed swiftly by narcotics and then obviously their bread and butter gambling. You know, they, they've always, you know, loved supplying and sort of, uh, what's the word when you, it's what people do with alcoholics and drug addicts. They, ah, son of a bitch. Well, moving along. Nonetheless, they, uh, they never help gamblers. They always keep them gambling, you know? (laughs) So after he's made, uh, boss of a crime borgata in Brooklyn, enable, that's the word. Jesus. I knew as soon as I started like carrying on, it'd come back to me. Sorry guys. Nonetheless, once he starts running his own crime borgata in Brooklyn, he, uh, I mean, he becomes very, very rich. He becomes very successful. Uh, he's got very loyal men underneath him. He, he's, he's very fair to his men, you know? It's, I mean, he's kind of like in, in the movie A Bronx Tale when Chaz Palminteri is explaining, you know, like, I treat my men good, but not too good. You know, I give them just enough to where they don't resent me, but I don't give them too much to where they don't need me. You know, I keep them, you know, I keep them scared of me, you know, like a little bit of fear, a little bit of respect, you know? He was, he he was kind of that type of boss. He, you know, up until, you know, we'll get, we'll get into it in a little bit, but up until uh, Joey Gallo, crazy Joe Gallo sort of wants to just try to take over. Nobody really, uh, had had too much negative negativity towards Profaci being their boss. I mean, he, he helped people make a lot of money. I mean, from extortion, gambling, narcotics, obviously, you know, when bootlegging was going on, you know, he, he got involved in that. Although he didn't get involved in that as heavy as most of the other guys did. Ironically enough, he was more into the gambling and then the olive oil uh, business was a big business for him. <laughs> he definitely, definitely fancied himself more of a, a businessman, I, I think, than a gangster. But because even during the Castellanese Wars, uh, the beer wars, you know, between Sal Maranzano and Joe the Boss Mazzaria, <clears throat> I mean, Profaci always kind of remained neutral. And, uh, I mean, eventually he would align himself with Sal Mazzaria, or not Sal Mazzaria, excuse me, Sal Maranzano, and, you know, just to kind of eat by. But he did support Lucky Luciano when Lucky Luciano was trying to take out the old guard or the mustache peats, as they were better known of their era and sort of start the new, you know, national crime syndicate and make 
make the commission and make crime actually really organized, not just, you know, a bunch of bunch of street gangs, essentially, you know, that gen generate tons of money, but we're still warring with each other as if they were Crips and Bloods during the, you know, 1920s all the way up till 1931, when Luciano establishes the National Crime Syndicate and the, you know, the Board of Commissions. <clears throat> now, as soon as Luciano establishes the commission, actually, I mean, Sal Maranzano made Profaci a boss of his own family anyway, you know, when, when Maranzano uh, established, you know, the setup of the whole five families in New York and like, you know, you had the Buffalo and, you know, the original families of the modern American mafia, he instantly made Profaci a boss. So like, I, my only guess would be that Profaci could generate that much revenue that they were like, fuck it. He's smart. Let him have it. You know, he keeps to himself. He's quiet. Like, you know, and Luciano felt the same way. Cause when Luciano, you know, took him out, when took Maranzano out, you know, and got rid of Mazzaria and all that and sort of began to head the commission. First thing he did was eliminate the Capo Duty Copy, which is the boss of all bosses. That is Luciano hated that. And he wanted it to run like a democracy where everybody who was the boss of their family, you know, came together and everybody's vote ran as, you know, an equal vote. It just, you know, if you, if it was three to three to two, you know, obviously whoever is on the, the side with three, what they wanted to happen is happening, you know, <clears throat> then they had the thing where you kind of have what they call a proxy vote. Like, uh, like for example, uh, Joe Profaci aligns himself with Stefano Magadiano, who was, uh, the boss in Buffalo. Now, the reason that was smart to do and the reason a lot of bosses would do it is because let's say Stefano can't attend a, a commission meeting that that's happening because for the most part, the five families in New York attend every commission meeting. The heads of the five families in New York always attend every meeting. A lot of them are in New York or they're, you know, in, in various areas. And let's say uh, Mag Magadino can't can't make it or let's say even if Magadino could make it and Profaci for some reason couldn't make it, they would just sort of there'd be like just a gentleman's agreement that whatever vote the one would cast, you would have the other's proxy vote. You know what I mean? Like, like Magadino and Profaci, you know, would form an alliance. So even if Profaci sort of wanted something, you know, a little different than Mag Magadino wanted, he would still back his vote so long as it didn't directly affect what, what he was specifically wanting. And the reason you would do that is because, you know, then, you know, you scratch my back, I scratch yours. Uh, probably the most infamous pair of that, for me anyway, uh, would be Carlo Gambino and um, Angelo Bruno from Philadelphia. Those two were as thick as thieves, and let me tell you, if, if if Angelo needed Carlo's backing, he had it, and if Carlo needed Angelo's backing, he had it. So, so it was all, it was something a lot of the a lot of the bosses did, and uh, I mean, it was very effective, it was very very effective in getting what you want. <clears throat> now. You know, by 1956, uh, Profaci, like any good, you know, mafioso, uh, begins having some legal issues due to a, a phone recording, actually, because this is around the time they start bugging phones and they start, you know, and he is on the phone with Antonio Catani and they're discussing, you know, various, various uh, crimes or rackets or plots, you know, and the feds pick it up. And so that was sort of his first run in with like heavily legal issues where his name started to really trickle down. And but what would really do it, just like what would really do it for a lot of people, would be Vito Genovese's Appalachian meeting in 1957. And Profaci would be one of the, you know, 60 members 
all of which were very high ranking. They were either bosses, you know, underbosses or, you know, you know, I guess in some cases, maybe a driver or a bodyguard. But for the most part, they were all very top echelon members of the American mafia from from all over. I mean, Detroit, Milwaukee, Chicago, L.A., you know, all the five families in New York, Buffalo, Philadelphia, Toronto, Montreal, you know, Boston, just you name it. They they were there, uh, and that's why that was the first and last of its kind as far as a gathering of you know top mobsters. It don't it don't happen anymore because it uh it obviously didn't work in 1957. So why the fuck would it ever work in any year following that? You know what I mean? <clears throat> like that that sort of big gathering of head mobster eras died in the 30s. By the 40s, you know the feds are they're wising up, but. Profaci is one of the one of the sixty who actually gets you know arrested, taken in and charged with conspiracy, because when you know when you got that big of a a meeting and it's unclear why you're all there and nobody's talking, they're just gonna slap you with a conspiracy charge. All you fucking scumbags are getting together to conspire to do something. So, but on November 28, 1960, the U.S. Court of Appeals uh, overturns the verdict for Profaci. I do believe for most of the others too, if not all the others. I'm not 100 percent on that, but. Yeah, for, for the most part, you know, they were just kind of, because they didn't get nothing on any of them, and none of them would talk, you know, so, I mean, the U.S. kind of, they kind of shit the bet on that one. <clears throat> now, it's around this time, you know, 1960, 1961, that crazy Joey Gallo, who's a captain in the Profaci crime family, um, kind of begins wanting all the power for himself. I did an did a episode about him a couple back and uh, sort of explained his crazed, manic ways, you know, I mean, he's actually diagnosed as a schizophrenic, and the fact that he always, he, he never, he never gave a fuck about the chain of command, like, and I mean, there's a lot of guys who, who don't, and for the most part, anybody who ends up taking over a family, <clears throat> they either were related to the boss who had passed away, um, or they, you know, killed them and took over, <laughs> you know, are there who the boss trusted when the boss goes to prison? You know, I mean, that's really the only, the only three ways that it, that it happens, you know, for, like for the most part, it really never goes to who's more deserving. It goes to who you like the most or who you, you know, trusted the most, which, Hey, I'm, I mean, I'm not arguing a bunch of fucking criminals. How am I going to tell you how to run a fucking criminal operation? You know what I mean? <laughs> I, I don't even know, like if, if I could run a small gang, let alone a fucking family of a hundred made men and 500 associates, you know, forget about it. <clears throat> but on February 27, 1961, uh, Crazy Joe Gallo kidnaps, you know, some of Provacci's top echelon men. He, he kidnaps Magliaco, you know, the underboss. He kidnaps his consigliere, he kidnaps, you know, a captain, and he kidnaps a soldier of Provacci's. And Provacci sort of played it close to the chest. He wouldn't meet the ransom demands Gallo wanted, but after he could see Gallo sort of kind of, you know, um, uh, how to put it, sort of falling apart on his own plan. Like Gallo thought they were going to get a hundred K and ride off into the sunset. And, you know, Profaci would know who was the, you know, who was the king and that ain't how it happened. Eventually Profaci managed to get Gallo to, you know, release the hostages claiming that there'd be no retribution. However, he would enlist the help of Carmine, the snake purse ago and, you know, and a, another mobster to try and kill Gallo's brother, Larry, uh, who bar barely dodged death, uh, you know, just barely skated out of the attempted hit. But in 1962, Profaci isn't 
beginning to get in poor health. He's beginning to get sick. He's not looking well. He's not feeling well. And family bosses, Carlo Gambino and Tommy Lucchese at the time, try to convince him to retire. But he, uh, <laughs> he, doesn't, he doesn't retire. He, he lives this life to his dying day. And uh, his dying day, you know, happens to be on June 6, 1962, in a Southside hospital uh, in Bayshore, New York. And he, uh, he passed from liver ca- uh, cancer, which, like I said, back in this era, like a lot of these guys I'm going to talk about, if somebody didn't put a bullet into them, or they're not still currently alive and serving 100 years, you know, or, you know, turned state's witness, uh, a lot of them died from cancer. You know, that's a stressful fucking life. You know, they, you're drinking all the time. You're eating all the time. They, these guys, they smoke. They don't, they don't take very good care of themselves. It's not like, you know, it's not like there's a bunch of Joe Rogans running around the mafia fucking being, you know, health conscious and shit. Like, that's not how it goes. <clears throat> now, the family's left uh, Macliaco after Profaci passes. He takes control. Uh, and that's until 1963 when eventually the family's turned over to Joseph Colombo or Joe Colombo, who was ordered by Magliaco to take out Carlo Gambino. But the commission never approved it, and Magliaco was just trying to make a power move because Carlo Gambino is probably the most powerful mob boss in the world at this period in time. I mean, we're talking, you know, in the 60s. And Joe Colombo, I mean, by the time he gets gets the order to kill Carlo Gambino, he's already got 13 hits under his belt. So murder isn't isn't nothing to him, but he begins to think on it and, like, you know, does it, do the ends justify the means? And then B, even if I do do this job and Macliaco's happy and like, you know, yay me, like what's the commission going to do? You know, like he, he was between a rock and a hard place and he definitely, uh, he definitely slid out of that crevice. Let me tell you, cause he, he ends up tipping off Gambino <clears throat> and as punishment, Gambino and the rest of the commission, they banish, uh, Macliaco. And, you know, because he, they, like, they all did respect Joe, Joe Profaci, so they didn't kill Magliaco. They said, you're done. You're stripped of all, you know, your mob power, your mob rights. We don't ever want to fucking see you again. Like, move to Nebraska, wherever the fuck you got to go, you're done. And they, you know, turned the family over to Joe Colombo, who in turn renames the family. And uh, it goes from being the Profaci family, which is one of the original five families from the time the commission was formed right out the gate to the Colombo family, which still holds Colombo's name today to this day. <clears throat> and that's just because Joe Colombo was so much more flamboyant and like made more of a celebrity out of himself and was gunned down in front of, you know, like fucking 5,000 people. So, <clears throat> so that's the tale of Joe Profaci, everybody. I really hope you enjoyed it because I enjoy doing it and I hope you guys are staying safe out there. You know, I like, this quarantine shit's got everybody. I mean, we all had cabin fever to begin with. Winter was ending. We were trying to, you know, get out for springtime. Everybody wants to go, you know, you know, fuck like rabbits and go to bonfires and have beers and, you know, just have a good time. But we got to be patient, you guys. We got to be patient. Like, they keep, uh, they just keep getting more and more cases of this. And that's because nobody's fucking listening. Fast food shouldn't be essential for one thing. Me personally. That's my personal thought. I guess for truckers, maybe. But... I don't know, for us everyday people, and I'm no better, I'm out, I'm out there eating out fucking every other day too, but I need to stop, we need to stop, we're better than this, we can beat this shit, we beat the bubonic plague, we beat measles, we beat mumps, polio, the Spanish flu, you name it, we beat it, this can't be the one that takes us out, you guys, so stay in, stay safe, you know, hug the ones you love, 
if you're one of those people who, who has Corona, my heart goes out to you. If you're one of those people who've lost somebody from Corona, my heart definitely goes out to you. But all that aside, you know, just try to be self-conscious and conscious about, you know, humanity. Like this is the one time in history, you know, for a lot of us where we got to actually, oh, I don't know, give a fuck about other people. So, so, I mean, let's just bite the bullet and like, I know, I know caring about others sucks, but let's give it a shot. All right. <clears throat> Thanks for joining me here at Wise Guys Hideaway. Uh, I hope to be going live with video and uh, posting on YouTube here soon. I've made the channel. I just got to find out how to sync up, you know, the, the recording part as well as, you know, the film part. So hopefully soon I'll be, uh, I'll be live on your phone screen and not just live in your earbuds. From everybody here at Wise Guys Hideaway, we love you. Stay safe. Thanks for stopping by.